Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. We do have some Bibles over on the table. If you need a Bible, feel free to help yourself. Again, that's Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, what a great privilege it is to enter now into a season of meditating on what your purposes are in the church and your love that's flowing in the church. How I pray that you would strengthen me this morning, Father, and cause me to speak your word with clarity and with passion that's appropriate to your word. And how I pray that you would stir all the more deeply in the hearts of your people so that we would see your will for the church and live our lives in conformity with your will. Father, we simply want to be the people that you have called us to be. So I pray that you would use your word now to accomplish that purpose. I give myself to you. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer, and our Friend. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It is my privilege this morning to begin a series of sermons on the topic of koinonia. Koinonia is a Greek word that most of your Bibles translate fellowship, and we'll be spending two or three months talking about this topic. My aim this morning to get us started is to accomplish four things. First of all, I want to explain to you why Pastor Kevin and I feel justified in bringing a series of topical sermons before you. We haven't done that before, but we want to explain why we feel like it's a good thing to do that now. But also, I want to explain why we think that that would not be a good thing to preach topically one series after another. So I'll take a few minutes and lay that out for you. Number two, I want to explain to you our motives in bringing this series to you, and I want to invite you into a discussion with us that we've been having for about three years now, and we long for you to join in that discussion. Number three, I want to define the word koinonia as carefully as I can and help you to get a picture of the fullness of what the Lord is trying to communicate to us in this one word. And then finally, I want to close by looking at Acts 2, 42 and 47 rather briefly, although we'll come back to it in future weeks. And my aim there is simply to elevate the place of the importance of koinonia in your thinking. It has a a very high place in the mind of God for the life of the church, and I want to begin to elevate it in your own thinking and in your own living as well. So let me begin by saying a few things about topical preaching. There are basically two ways that a church can approach the preaching ministry, the first of which I would call ideological preaching, and the other of which I would call expositional preaching. Let me just explain the terms to you now. Ideological preaching refers to the type of preaching where a preacher begins basically with his own ideas and then goes to the Bible to support those ideas. So he may choose a topic like, let's say, marriage, 
and then come up with ideas of what he wants to say about marriage, and then he'll go search through the Bible for texts that support the ideas that he already has. So he may deal well with this or that text along the way in his sermons, but the truth of the matter is that his ideas are the ideas that are dominating the content of the teaching rather than the wisdom that's contained in the Word of God. I think that's a problem. I think it's a a, a massive problem in the evangelical church in America today, and therefore we reject this kind of preaching. I call it ideological because it begins again with the preacher's ideas and then goes to the text. Expositional preaching, on the other hand, does it just the other way around. The conviction of expositional preaching is that the wisdom we need as the church is found in the Word of God. And so the job of the preacher is to go into the Word and dig as deeply as he can and simply expose for the people the meaning that's already in the Word of God. So he, I, every week, begin my studies into the Word, not thinking about my sermon at all. I very rarely begin thinking about what I will say. I just go to the Word because I need the Word. I love the Word of God. And I want it in my life. I want to understand it. And then I want to expose it to you. That's expositional preaching. It's exposing the wisdom that is already contained in the Word of God. And it probably goes without saying that this is the kind of preaching that we strive to embrace here at Glory of Christ. Now, there's more than one way that you can preach in this manner, at least two of them. First of all, you can choose a topic like marriage or like koinonia, as we're choosing to do now. And if you choose a topic, what an expositional preacher will do is very carefully go to texts that deal with this topic and be careful to understand what the Bible's saying about that topic on its own terms. You see? So it's possible to preach on a topic, but to honor the wisdom of the Bible, right? That there is, that is one way that you can do it. Another way that you can preach expositionally is just to preach right through books. Just start at chapter one and move your way right through to the end of the book. Now the conviction of the elders at Glory of Christ is that the best thing for the church is to mainly work our way through books. But we also think that from time to time it's acceptable to bring a topical series when there's a need or a hope in the life of the church. So here's why we think that it's best to work straight through books. There's actually a whole lot of reasons. And if I ever finish my book that I've been working on, like it seems like forever, I've literally been working on it since 2001. If I ever finish it, you'll get to see what I think about these things. But here are probably the two main reasons why it's good to just start at the beginning of a book and work right through to the end. First of all, preaching straight through books of the Bible best honors the God-given order and logic of the Bible. God has revealed himself in a particular manner and in a particular order for particular reasons. And when the preacher honors the order in which God has revealed himself, he, he begins to see those reasons and can illuminate for the rest of the church what those reasons are. So to give you an example, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we have lots of practical and ethical instructions there for how we ought to live our lives in light of Christ. But all of that instruction is built on the theological teaching in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if you jump straight to the practical implications of truth without first laying the foundation of the truth, I think you mislead people and I think you dishonor God. Every text of the Bible needs to be preached in light of its larger context. And it just seems to me a matter of simple logic 
that the best way to make sure you're doing that is just to start at the beginning of the book and move right through. In that way, you're honoring the God-given order of the Bible. A second reason why it's good to preach this way is that preaching straight through books of the Bible causes the preacher to address a whole host of issues that in his own nature he would probably not address. There are lots of things that I should preach on that I would never preach on if it was left to me to develop the topics that were being brought before the church. For instance, when we got to Ephesians chapter 2, I I spent a fair amount of time talking about the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and how central it is to the gospel that God in Christ is reconciling Jews with Gentiles. Now, if I was left to my own, I would probably never in my entire ministry have ever preached on the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. It's just not a subject that is naturally exciting to me. I don't think a lot about it. I have some friends in seminary who spend a lot of time thinking about that, but for whatever reason, it's just never really flipped my switch. But it's a subject that must be preached upon, and I say that for this simple reason. God has spoken about it. God has said things about this. He has revealed His purposes in what He's doing between Jews and Gentiles, and it reveals the glory of God in the Gospel. It must be preached upon. And yet, if I didn't start at the beginning of Ephesians and work through, I probably would never have preached on it. So it's a really, really, really good thing to just begin at chapter 1 and make your way through because a host of topics are raised for the good of the church that otherwise probably wouldn't be raised. And they're raised in their proper context, you see? So again I say, the conviction of the elders of this church is that the vast majority of the preaching here should just work right through books of the Bible. And yet, from time to time... We do think it's acceptable to pause, to take up a subject, and to mind the wisdom of the Scripture with regard to that subject. But I just want to urge you to help us guard against that kind of preaching, topical preaching, becoming normative in the life of the church. I think that when a church slips into preaching one topic after another, they're just that far away from slipping into ideological preaching where the idea of the preacher or the idea of the elders is the controlling force of the church. And that is a humongous mistake. It's the biggest mistake the seeker church movement made. And that was moving away from the mind of the Word of God. A humongous mistake. And I don't want to make it here at this church. So I am calling you to help us be disciplined that for the vast majority of our life together, we'll just work straight through books of the Bible. Deal? Good. Well... We do feel justified now, though, in bringing a topic, uh, the topic of koinonia before you, and I want to take just a couple of minutes and explain why, so that you understand our motives and you know where we're coming from. Over the last several years, there has been a, a rising conviction in our hearts about the place of koinonia in the mind of God for the life of the church. One of the first, in fact, Kevin, I think the very first conversation we ever had together, we talked about the subject when we met at Perkins. We began talking about the fellowship of the life of the church, and we have literally, for three and a half years now, talked about the subject together. And Mike and, and a couple of others were involved in the conversation as well. We've meditated on a whole host of topics. We've, we've literally talked for hours and hours and hours and prayed together about what God might be doing through this teaching of Koinonia to shape His church. And the bottom line is now we want to invite you into the conversation. We've wanted to invite you in a a deeper way into this conversation for a long time, but it just wasn't time, and we feel that now is the time. We already see over the last several years God at work in this church 
shaping us so that koinonia is a hallmark of glory of Christ. I think in future years, koinonia will be one of the things that absolutely marks this church, and it already is now. The way that you all have responded recently to what happened to the Wenzel family has moved me to tears several times, and I mean that. I have been blown away with the love of this body for that family, and that is just one example of several examples that are even coming to my mind now of how this church just naturally loves the church. And I want to tell you that I love you for that. I, I appreciate you so much for that. It inspires me. It just inspires me. You know, when I see something happen in the body, and as a pastor, I don't have to start making phone calls to get everybody to love each other. It just happens. It's like before I even knew it, ten people were over at the Wenzel's house trying to help them out. I love that. It inspires me. And according to 1 John, it's proof that you are really in Christ. And that Christ is really in you. And it's a beautiful thing. I think on a scale of 1 to 10, this church is probably already at a 7 or 8 on the scale of koinonia. We are living this life already. And what I hope that you will see along with us is that this is not just simply a human thing that's happening in our midst. These, this love that exists in this church cannot just be explained by sociological or psychological theories. It cannot. It is a movement of the Holy Spirit of God in us, causing us to love one another. And I hope that you see that. The motive of the elders now is simply to put a theological foundation under what already exists at this church. God is already doing it. So we want to come in and stoke the fire, want to fan the flame, want to see this thing blow up and blaze high and wide and tall and deep for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're up to. We do not have an agenda for the outcome of this series in terms of like a, a program for the church. I just, I don't want you to be sitting there in the, in your seats for the next two or three months thinking, what are they really up to? Is there something that's coming down the pike? And I would just honestly answer no. We have ideas for how the life of the church could grow and how it might look, but we don't have a programmatic agenda. What we're wanting to do is to invite you to meditate deeply on the Bible with us, understand the will of God for the church, and then work together to bring our lives into, into conformity with the will of God. That's what being a Christian is all about, right? You grow in your understanding of God's will, and then you shape your life according to God's will. That's what being a Christian is about. That's what this series is about. And as you know, becoming a Christian is not a one-time thing. It is, there is a one-time event wherein you come into Christ, but the process of becoming a Christian is a lifelong thing, right? I bet you none of us has arrived. I bet you none of us would say, I am as fully Christian now as I ever will be. There's many things in my life that are out of order, and I need Christ to come in and shape it up. I need to submit myself to His wisdom and His ways. And so that's really what this series is about. It's about putting us, ourselves as a church, underneath the light of the Word of God and simply coming into conformity with that light. So a question that we could put over this series would simply be this, Father, what are your purposes for the church, and how can we cooperate with you? It really comes down to that. Father, how can we enter into the joy of what you're doing in the church through Jesus Christ?
Christ. So again, this series is not about an agenda or even a philosophy of ministry. It's about discerning and coming into conformity with the will of God. And one of our core convictions at Glory of Christ is that the more we bring our lives into conformity with the will of God, even though there is pain involved in doing that, but the more you come into conformity, the more joy you have in Christ. Period. The more you come into conformity with God, the more glory He gets and the more joy you get over time. There's pain in the process. We're not naive about that. But I'm telling you, the path to joy is found in following the will of God. Period. I remember this year when I was reading through Jeremiah, the Lord just pleading with His people. He said, oh, if you would just have listened to me, I commanded you for your good. I wanted your good and you would not listen to me. So the will of God for us is all about our good. It's all about our joy. And I pray that we will enter into that joy together as a church. So here's the outline for the series then, given all of that. We're going to start with addressing a few theological issues. Next week I want to talk about the delight of God in God or the fellowship that exists inside the Trinity because that fellowship is the foundation of our fellowship with one another. And then from there, I want to talk about the place of koinonia in the process of creation and sin and redemption in Jesus Christ. And then we're going to take a whole series of metaphors that the Bible uses about the church because if you'll think about those metaphors carefully, what they do is they give you a glimpse into the mind of God as to how He thinks about the church and what his purposes are for the church. So we're going to talk about the metaphors of the household or the family of God. We're going to talk about the body of Christ, the, 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 the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Metaphors like that. And think about what they imply for our life together. Think about what they imply about the mind of God for the life of the church. And then coming out of that, we'll close the series out by addressing a number of topics in relationship to koinonia. So we'll talk about koinonia and worship, prayer, communion, unity, missions, evangelism, suffering. That's one sermon I, I can't wait to preach on, koinonia and suffering. We'll just deal with a whole host of practical issues. So basically, we'll deal with theological things, some metaphorical things, and then we'll get real practical and begin just bringing our life into conformity with the will of God. So that is the plan. Let me begin our formal study of koinonia now by trying to define the term koinonia, and then we'll look at Acts chapter 2 fairly briefly. The word koinonia is a Greek word, and it's built off of another word, koinos. So you can see and you can hear the relationship, koinos and koinonia. Koinos essentially means common, and it's used in one of two ways. First of all, it's used to mean common as opposed to holy. So the word holy means that something is set apart, that it's sacred, like like this uh, plate here that we bought for the communion bread. That plate won't be used for anything other than communion bread. It's set apart. It's holy. It's not common, in other words. A common plate, you just chow on any old thing. But a set apart plate, a holy plate, would not be used in that fashion. And so sometimes the word common is used to mean the opposite of holy. It can mean defiled or, or unclean or what have you. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is in Acts chapter 10, where Peter, you might remember, was sitting up on his rooftop praying, and the Lord gave him a vision. And in part of that vision, what he saw was this huge thing that looked like a sheet that was being lowered down from heaven, and inside the sheet were all kinds of animals, some of which the law had called unclean. And God had commanded the Jews, you shall not eat of this animal and that animal and this animal and that. 
Well, all these kind of animals were inside the sheep. And God said to Peter in verse 13, he said, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter responded like this in verse 14. He said, by no means, Lord. That's a little oxymoronish, isn't it? By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So you can see there, the word common essentially means not holy. It means defiled. It means unclean. And the Bible uses the word koinos in that way quite a number of times. But the second way that the word koinos is used is to mean common as in mutual or communal. Probably the best example of this is in Acts chapter 4. If you're there in Acts, why don't you just flip over a couple chapters. And I'll just read one verse, uh, verse 32. Luke writes there. He said, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And that's the word koinos. They had everything in koinos. So the picture is that they shared the deepest things of life together. They shared their hearts. They shared their minds. They shared their belief in Christ. And as a visible manifestation of these deeper spiritual things, they shared their possessions with each other. Please understand, no one in the early church was required to sign their possessions over to the church. That's what cults do. That is not what Jesus Christ does. These people were sharing their possessions out of the desire of their hearts because they were one with each other in Christ. They had a a, a commonality with one another in Christ. The word koinonia then is built off of this second usage of the word common. So that koinonia means something like a commonness of life. Or a participation. Or a a partnership. Or a communion. Or as most of your Bibles translate it as a fellowship. Since in Christ we are connected mainly by virtue of our belief in Jesus Christ... We can say that koinonia in the church is a commonness of life in Christ. You see, this word koinonia would be used in New Testament times to refer to people that were outside the church, to a lion's club or something like that. They had a a kind of koinonia. But the koinonia inside the church is extremely unique. It is built upon our love for Jesus. So, since I am one with Christ by virtue of my belief in Him, and since you who believe are one with Christ by virtue of your belief in Him, I am one with you, and you are one with me. And this theological fact extends from every believer to every believer across the entire world and across all times. Everyone who has ever believed in Jesus Christ and whoever will believe in Jesus Christ is one with everyone else who has believed in Jesus Christ. This is our koinonia. It is a commonness of life in Christ. Now, meditating on that fact led me to a really important insight, and I pray to God that He will open your eyes to see what He opened my eyes to see, namely that at the heart of our koinonia in the church is love. It's love. Love is the thing that makes koinonia tick in the church. Here's what I mean. It was the love of God that caused Him to send Jesus Christ into the world. Right? John 3.16 
For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was love that caused our Father to do that. It was love that caused our Father to cause us to believe in Him and have life with Him. For me, 23 years ago now, the lights turned on and I believed in Jesus Christ. And for the first time, I had life in my life. It was love that compelled God to do that. And I know that because Ephesians 2.4 says it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Hallelujah! It was the love of God that saved us. It is the love of God that commands us to love Him first and foremost with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Can you see this? Your Father, your Heavenly Father, out of love for you, is saying, now I want you to love me above all other things. The command to love God is not about duty. It's about love. And it is the love of God that commands, that causes Him to command us also to love one another. You remember the person asked Jesus just what is the first command, but Jesus answered with two. Love God with everything you have and love each other as you love yourselves. Love is at the heart of koinonia. What koinonia is, is the love of our Father pouring through His people to His people and back to Him. Oh, how I pray that you see that. Koinonia is a word that is trying to capture the fact that the love of God is at work among His people. That's what the word is all about. It's the love of the Father pouring through His people to His people and back to Him in a never-ending cycle. Koinonia is the love of God at work in the church. It is the tie that binds us together. It is the glue that holds us together. And that glue, more specifically, is the love of the Father. I really pray, and I've been praying all week, that this church will never forget that lesson. Fifty years from now, I pray that the koinonia that marks this church, that all of us will still say, I'm going to be really old if I still have life then, but I hope I'll still say that our love for one another is about our love for God and God's love for us. That's koinonia. Koinonia is the love of our Father at work in the church. Now, given all of that, the depth and complexity of what's happening with the word koinonia, I hope you can understand why we have chosen in this series not to use the word fellowship. Fellowship is probably the best English word we have to capture koinonia, but I I think you can probably see with me that there's more dynamics going on in the word koinonia than we have captured in our word fellowship. And so we're just going to use the untranslated Greek word here. And what I want to ask you is if new people come into the church while we're preaching about this series and they don't know what the heck we're talking about, please help them understand because I can't spend every sermon redefining koinonia. So please just come to understand this word and and understand why we're leaving it untranslated and help us to help others understand. And by the way, just one more thing about this word. The concept of koinonia is actually communicated by a number of words in the New Testament. Koinonia is probably at the hub of them, but some of the other words are like one another. You're probably familiar with the famous one another text. Love one another, greet one another, serve one another, instruct one another. All of those things are about koinonia. 
the words unity and union, one mind, one heart, one soul, all of these things are pointing to the theological truth that by the love of God he is seeking to unify his church in Christ. That's what koinonia is all about. So as you're reading through your New Testament, just watch for all those kinds of words. See the concept even when the word isn't always used. Now, finally, with that in mind, let's uh, turn back to Acts chapter 2. And what I want to do is just read these verses for you again. And then I'm just going to make two brief comments, and I'm going to leave you to meditate on this on your own. We will definitely come back to Acts chapter 2 several times in the next several months. But for now, I just want to make a couple of preliminary comments. Here's what Luke writes. And they, that is the first church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's the word koinonia right there. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's the word koinos right there. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So just two preliminary comments today. First of all, that word devote in verse 42 there, some of your... Bibles might translate that a little bit differently, but whatever your translation is, in ESV it's devote. That word is a very strong word, and in fact it's built off a word in Greek, kratos, that means strong. And then that word is intensified so that the word means something like enduring strength or perseverance or persistence or dedication or devotion. It means to dedicate yourself to something with great energy and not to give up. To give yourself to something and keep on giving yourself to something. With strength, with power, with force, with will, with determination. That's what the early church did with regard to a number of things here. And what I want us to see is that these people were not just toying around with Jesus and with Christianity. This was their lives. Being a part of the church was not one part of many things that were involved in their lives. Being the church was their life, you see. Everything else in their life rotated around the blazing center of Jesus Christ and the things that were important to Jesus Christ. They did not think about the church as a social club or like a membership in the YMCA where you just come and go at will. They were devoted to these things out of love for God, out of love for Jesus. Not duty, but devotion. They were Christians, and it was their joy to pursue the things of Christ. Recently, somebody asked me if the the pursuit of memorizing a lot of Scripture and long portions of Scripture, if it was a kind of obsession. And I think that that's actually a fair question, because there are people in this world who are religiously obsessed, right? There, there are people who are even obsessed with the Christian religion, but who don't know God, who don't love Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about people like these. Well, actually, the Lord said it in, uh, I think it was Isaiah. These people draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it's possible to be obsessed with religion and not to know God. I totally grant that. But for a person who has come to know Jesus Christ, 
and who truly, by the grace of God, loves Jesus Christ, the passion to memorize a lot of Scripture and to spend a lot of time doing that is not about obsession. It's about devotion. It's about love. It's about wanting to know more about the love and the will and the ways of God than about the ways of the world. It's about, as the old hymn writer said, turning your eyes upon Jesus and looking full in His wonderful face through His Word so that the things of this world just grow strangely dim. They just fade in their pull on your heart in the light of His glory and grace. It's not about obsession. It's about love. It's about devotion. And the early church was radically devoted to the things of Christ. The church was not a peripheral part of their life. It was their life. And that was rooted in the love of God, you see. It was not duty. It was love that was compelling them to be devoted to the things of God. Now, with that as a foundation, the next thing I want to say fairly quickly is this. Of the hundreds of things that could have been said about the life of the early church, Hundreds of things. Only six or seven things were mentioned, and the second of them was koinonia. The second thing that God wanted to reveal to us about the life of the early church is that they were devoted to one another. And this is a huge thing for us to see. This gives us a a glimpse into the height of koinonia in the mind of God for His church. It's a huge thing. God caused His church to be devoted, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. And you know why? Because truth really matters. A lot of people out there teaching today that truth is divisive. Well, it is divisive. It divides those who believe from those who do not believe. For those of us who do believe, truth is our lifeblood. No truth, no Christianity, you see. The true church is always devoted to truth because God is a God of truth, period. And God caused His church to be devoted to one another because love really matters. Love is also so important to the church that if you remove it, you kill the church. God is love and therefore His people are always a people of love, period. Period. Truth and love. Truth and love. These things must mark the true church of God, and they always do. I've been reading in my personal quiet times, I've been spending a lot of time in First and Second and Third John lately, and the two words that just leap off the page over and again in those three letters are truth and love. Truth and love. Truth and love. Truth and love. So much so that I've come to the conclusion that without one or both of those things, you kill the church. And I mean that in the fullest extent of what I just said. If you take truth out of the church, you have just killed the church. This is my biggest concern with the left wing of the emergent movement, the liberal wing of the emergence. They have killed the church because they say right on the front page of their website, I I was thinking of a theological way they say it, and it won't make sense. So I think the idea is that relationships trump theology. That's what they teach. Relationships trump theology. Wrong. If you remove truth from the church, you kill the church, because our God is a God of truth. But if you remove love from the church, you also kill the church. You kill the church. They're right that relationships have a huge place in the church. They're just wrong in saying that relationships trump theology. They don't. We learn about the importance of relationship through theology, you see. 
We must be a church of truth, and we must be a church of love. And what I want you to see is that the word koinonia is capturing this love piece over here. Koinonia is simply describing the love of God at work in and among and through His people. That's what it's about. And if you remove it, you kill the church. And I mean that. I hope, therefore, that the issue of koinonia will be raised to a very high place in your thinking. We're going to see in a couple of weeks that John literally says, if you remove that, you do not know God. If you don't practice koinonia, you don't have Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more serious than that. It really doesn't. And so this is why we want to bring this series before the church. This issue is is bigger than we probably think. And I hope and pray to God that you will take some time this week to meditate, beginning on Acts chapter 42, and just think with us through the will of God, the purposes of God for the church, and work with us to bring our lives into conformity with it. To help you with that, instead of putting a study guide in your uh, bulletins today, um, what I did was prepare this study guide for you. There's about 20 of them out there on the table. If we run out, we'll, uh, we'll make more. And by the way, just a little apology. There are two pages to this, and we meant to staple them, and my lovely daughter was going to do that work for me, and I didn't bother to check and see that there was no staples in the stapler. So this is a two-page thing, and they're unstapled out there. You'll have to grab both staple, both pages. But what I did was I first defined the word koinos and koinonia here for you as thoroughly as I could, and then I list 14 texts that deal with the subject of koinonia, and I give notes and questions there to help you meditate on those. And then at the end, I list a bunch of texts, not all of them, but a number of the one another texts there to help you meditate on the place of the one another texts in the life of the church. Obviously, this is not something that you meditate on over one week. This could take you weeks or even months to meditate your way through. But I really hope that you'll take this and use this as a guide to help us think about the will of the Father for the life of His church. Let me pray then, and we will partake in communion together. Father, I am so deeply moved by the thought that koinonia is simply your love at work in the church, and how I pray that you would Reveal the depth of the truth of that to each one of us now. I pray that it would be a precious truth to us. I pray that we would lay our lives down to protect that truth. And I pray that we would live our lives in a way that honors that truth. We love you for loving us, Father. And we pray that you would cause all of us to grow in love now. I pray, Lord, as we turn our attention now to the communion table, I pray that this symbol would come into its fullness now for us. I pray that it would not just be a a religious, churchy ritual that we do, but that it would in fact have the impact that it was meant to have in symbolizing the love of your heart that's at work in this church through Jesus Christ. So I trust you for that now, Father, and I give myself to you, and I pray on behalf of all of us that we give ourselves to you now, and we do receive this bread and receive this cup in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.